Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. I'm Derek White, the author of The Challenge of Blackness and Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Lou, welcome back, brother. We are uh, officially back to work. Uh, we're going to call this season two of The Black Athlete. Yeah, sounds good, man. Uh, my semester just started, uh, so we're in week, week two of the semester, and 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 uh, I got a good group of students this year. I got a good group of classes. Uh, it's going to keep me busy, uh, so so I'm excited. Um, you know, I'm not happy that winter's right around the corner, but other than that, I'm excited. How about you? Uh, you know, we haven't started back yet at uh, Dartmouth, so we got a couple more weeks. We're on the quarter system, so... Um, but students are slowly starting to return. Uh, my student athletes are all on campus prepping. Fall athletes are returning and, and prepping for their seasons. And uh, and I'm getting myself together, although I don't teach until January because uh, I get a chance to go out on the road and uh, go to conferences and talk about my new book. Oh, I like that. The new book drop. Uh, tell us about your new book. Um, yeah. You know, uh, August 15th was the official release date of uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M and the history of black college football. And uh, yeah, no, I'm excited. It's just, you know, it's a labor of love, as you know, as a, as an author it took, took, you know, almost a decade to finish. Um, and it really just delineates using Florida A&M uh, as a model uh, delineates the history of black college football from the 1890s through the really the 1970s, 1980s. Uh, and, you know, looks at kind of three things, really, as I always say. It's um, one, uh, the creation of black college football as an idea, you know, between this relationship between the communities and the media and the, and the football and the schools themselves. Um, the second part is really what I describe as the golden age of black college football, which occurs after World War II in which black colleges were, uh, I would argue, dominant. These are the best programs, especially the elite black college programs. So Florida A&M and Grambling and Tennessee State and Southern and Prairie View were elite programs uh, on par with any school in the country, black or white. Uh, and then the third section of the book is really looking at uh, desegregation uh, and the impact of desegregation in the civil rights movement on black college football. And so you know, trying to tell that tell that story and really kind of re- bring that legacy uh, to a new generation of folks who are completely unaware of uh, the greatness, especially given, you know, as we saw the first weekend of college football, um, Florida A&M got beat 62 to nothing by Central Florida, um, which was uh, disappointing, but also speaks to where we are in a contemporary landscape. Uh, and Howard University uh, uh, lost to my alma mater, the University of Maryland, seventy-nine to nothing. Um, but there were some positive. Who was no? Who was right? Who yeah. was right? Who was right? But there were positive. South Carolina State beat Wofford, which is a FCS power. So we see a lot of uh, you know kind of mixed results in week one. Right, right. And can I add two things about your book? One, uh, I had the pleasure of reading it before it was out. Like pleasure of. Uh, how do I say reviewing it? And and the copy that I got, I wanted the audience to know, was about four hundred and fifty pages. So 
So shout out to Derek. He, I think he took about 200 pages off or, or 250 pages off. Um, so hopefully that last 200 plus pages becomes another book. And two, make sure you get it because today as we speak, uh, who Jamil Hill of now The Atlantic wrote a piece about black college athletes needing to go to HBCUs, right? Change the power dynamics and, and money dynamics. And and before we say anything about that, I would just ask the listeners to, to check out Derek's book and then read uh, reread that column uh, to see what you guys think. Yeah, definitely. I think it's an interesting conversation. Uh, we were talking about it in the pre-show prep, um, and I think we'll come back to it in a, in a week or so. I kind of want to see what the initial buzz uh, will be like uh, regarding um, the, the response to her article. But she makes some good points, um, but she also misses some questions about exploitation that, that I want to see uh, get grappled with. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Like my my main point is just like exploitation is exploitation, right? But I've like I've done the same thing, right? Like, hey, look, Ben Simmons didn't need to go to LSU. He could have gone to Southern. He could have gone to Grambling. Um, but at the same time, that's just transferring the power dynamics. And and I think this is a good jump off point um, to to talk what we're going to talk about today, which is really black capitalism and using Jay Z and Kaepernick's can we call it beef? We'll call it beef. Uh, you know, essentially what happened with Kaepernick and Jay-Z sliding in with the NFL ownership to talk about black capitalism. Yeah, I think yeah, it's an opportune time, right? Jay-Z uh, is, has, for those who are not aware and have somehow been on vacation for the last two weeks, Jay-Z uh, signed an agreement with the NFL in which he is going to be a ambassador to talk about social justice uh, and at least in the initial kind of um, uh, proposal, he's going to have some T-shirts and he's going to have some entertainment that is going to come with um, the NFL ahead of, I guess, the opening night. So I assume it'll be tonight because the NFL opens up tonight. Um, and so there's a sense, right? And then Kaepernick, uh, Jay-Z made the mist- couple of missteps. One, he implied uh, and stated that he had talked to Cap um, and Cap quickly uh, refuted that. Uh, the other misstep is that he said that we are beyond kneeling at this point and we're trying to do something. And thus his something is, is again, an entertainment concert slash T-shirt slash donation initiative, um, which seems kind of um, paltry given uh, his position uh, of undermining Kaepernick. Right. And let's, let's, um, let's do this because I don't want to get into Megan Trainer, and I don't understand how she gets uh, signed up to this. Uh, why, why Jay-Z thinks that this was, uh, like a good idea, but I think my main critique of this, and then I think we should talk black capitalism is that whatever Jay-Z did, and, and he's done a lot of, a lot of good stuff, right. For, for social justice is that he didn't need the NFL. Right. And I think my main critique is and I know some people say, "Oh, he's playing. He's playing chess. He's going to be an owner one day." Is that the NFL is part of the problem? Just the way it's set up, right? Um, especially when we're talking about public funding for private stadiums and and knowing, understanding that a lot of those public dollars could have been used, right, to to really help people who marginalized folks who need it. Um, and I think that's part of the problem that we see when we talk. Um, black capitalism in general right there are some critiques there are some good things out of it and i think that's what we want to do today um to start us off since this is a, a sports show 
um, I think it's appropriate to to talk about some of these great black athletes who looked at black capitalism in a, in a way as the solution and, and three and maybe four come to mind. I haven't heard a lot from LeBron, but I would say Jackie Robinson, Jim Brown, Magic Johnson, right off the bat. Um, a little bit of Craig Hodges, if you read his book, um, Long Shot, where he talks about opening up a factory in, in black communities and making like shoes and Nikes themselves. But I think this is a dream that starts in the 1960s. And the first athlete that you really see start to do this is Jackie Robinson. And what I mean by that is Jackie uh, starts helps starts a bank in Harlem, Freedom's National Bank in Harlem. And what he's trying to do with that is the simple idea that, look, we can't get access to money. Um, if we can't get access to money, we can't own things in our community. If we can't own things in our community, these dollars are just going to cycle out. So Jackie uses his platform and his power um, and his name to start a bank in Harlem. The other athlete that gets more uh, attention for this is Jim Brown who starts the Negro Economic uh, Negro Industrial Economic Union, which would later become the Black Economic Union or BEU. And for Brown, who's talking about this, and, and let's be clear, if we're going to talk about Jim Brown, I got to say he's problematic for everything he went through in the 60s with domestic violence and statutory rape charges. But for Brown, um, in this context, um, his thing was talking green power. Right. Not necessarily black power, but green power. And that is this idea that that if we have money in our community, then we could change our communities. And to that end, with the BEU, he had more than 100 athletes involved. Uh, many, many of these are football players, but he had 100 athletes involved, giving money, giving time to try to build in the black community. Yeah. And I think in a. And I think, as you point out, Jackie Robinson, Jim Brown are, are kind of the classic examples. And the modern example, we watched Magic Johnson really kind of transform his post, you know, his post playing career into to being kind of the premier kind of business person uh, for professional athletes. Right. Magic Johnson theaters. Right. In in various communities across the country uh, and especially starting in Los Angeles. He had a Pepsi uh, series of he, he was franchise, I believe, or distribution in, of Pepsi and a bunch of other kind of um, right. business arrangements that made magic kind of synonymous with uh, with capitalism and as really what you could do as an athlete and to try to transfer uh, your, you know, your legacy as, a, as an athlete into economic kind of benefit, but also with an eye towards benefiting the community, right? right? So magic was always not just like, oh, I'm going to just make all this money, but these are also kind of community related ventures, right? With the theater and Starbucks and various neighborhoods uh, in Los Angeles. Right. And I think magic story is this um, important for listeners to understand because we're going to talk this context and we'll get into like the sixties and stuff too, when we talk about capitalism, but magic, uh, I think when the, when the riots hit or in South Central in 1992, magic was sitting back and wondering what he can do and i believe it was like an, an an economic advisor right told him like look use your money to to make changes and and to that end that's where magic's portfolio grows right and so that's where you get your fat burgers i think he owned about 13 starbucks he had his theaters as you said and they're all in the hood right so to be clear, there's always been black athletes thinking about trying to invest their money, but a lot of times investing their money was for their own portfolio. Magic was investing his money for his portfolio, but also for his community. Now, the knock on Magic 
was whether those dollars recycled back in that community. Um, so Magic had a lot of outside partners and outside investors. And so soon people started to complain about, wait a minute, this this money is not, I mean, these are outside investors coming in, pouring money, and then that money is going to go back out. How does it recycle back into the community? But still, the main point for Magic was, look, this is how we're going to make these changes, right? We're going to put money we're going to give jobs and we can critique whether those are good jobs or not but we're going to provide these opportunities um in our community now at the same time i mentioned before craig hodges was trying to do a similar thing uh and if listeners know when craig hodges was doing this he was on the chicago bulls and he tells the story at one point after he wins the the three-point shooting contest that he took his check and it's like 20 25 000 at that time put it down in the locker room and try to get other players on their bulls to put money in because he he wanted to start businesses in their community right like why 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 should we have to see this money go out why should we have to see our people suffering let's do something about it and he got no uh takers on that and i gotta believe like if today that's something ha- if something like that happened you would at least get some right to, to put it um just because of the way things are starting to change and and part of that is like the rise of lebron james trying to use his money to make changes Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think the thing that the thing that's interesting about Craig Hodges is right that he is deeply influenced by what we think of as kind of the black nationalist culture. Right. Like, you know, he he used his platform and and he he admitted that he was influenced by the Nation of Islam in Chicago. And, and, and what that really brings us to the larger context, going back to both Jim Brown uh, and even Jackie Robinson, um, in the 1960s is this whole push uh, coming out of black power and black nationalism uh, that there was a business component, right. right? So even if we go as far back into the 1920s with Marcus Garvey and the UNIA, right, that he had the Black Star Line, right, that Elijah Muhammad in the Nation of Islam was was a central component of the Nation of Islam was these business ventures, right? They had dry cleaning. They, you know, we we always make the joke. Uh, I tell students all the time, like if you're in the neighborhood, right? You know, the Nation of Islam is selling you right. bean pies. Like that's part of this initiative, right? Right. right? Uh, and and this extends all the way into the 1970s, right? When we see someone like Floyd McKissick, who was in core. Um, really produced this idea of of Soul City, which was in Warren, uh, North Carolina, is this idea that these black owned communities, um, and that gets supported by uh, Richard Nixon. So you, it's not unusual that Jim Brown supports uh, Richard Nixon or Floyd McKissick supports Richard Nixon because he's talking about black capitalism. So there's this long history of complicated relationships between, I think, of conservative politics and 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 black capitalism. Um, and so at one level, when Craig Hodges is promoting this idea, he is presenting it as this radical idea and shaming his teammates for not doing it, but it has this kind of underlying conservatism built into it. Right. And, and to make that point about Craig Hodges and nation of Islam is that he, in his book, he writes about how he believes that he got, um, moved out of Milwaukee. Um, he got moved out of Milwaukee because he was trying to get his black teammates to go to National Islam meetings. Um, so, so I believe he goes traded from Milwaukee to to Phoenix. Um, the other thing too, we talk about the '60s and black capitalism and also National Islam and Jim and Jim Brown. We see that meeting, 
in our over Ali. They start main main down Eek, right? So it's Jim Brown, it's Ali, which is, you know, us the Nation of Islam trying to be promoters in the fight game. Um, even though the Nation of Islam at that time is looking at boxing as this is we don't do sports, right? This distracts us. This is a problem. And and obviously once Ali stops making money, uh, they, they drop over. Right? Yeah, we're done with you. Um, but you see that, that kind of coming together. And I also like that point uh, about Nixon because Nixon hijacks that idea of black power and black capitalism. Right. And at one point, you know, he's running, he's trying to get the black vote. Now Jackie will, will move away, but athletes like, Brown, Wilt Chamberlain, Joe Lewis will go Nixon. And at one point, Nixon says, like, look, black power is really black capitalism. And he uses that to try to kind of go out the, the black middle class, right? Like how this is probably one of the last times the Republicans are actually making a real run at the black vote, right? And how do we get that? Create a black middle class. And you see that even in in popular culture in the 1970s with, with George Jefferson, right? Who is a small right. business oh, owner who, what does he own? The dry, speaks of dry cleaning, owns the dry cleaning store, right? Uh, if I have that right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, I, and I'm pretty sure he's a Nixon guy. Um, I haven't seen the Jeffersons in a while, but I'm pretty sure that's the case, right? And, and he's the, the embodiment of what Nixon saw as black power, which is black capitalism, which is another way where you don't have to talk about you know, racism anymore. You just talk about empowering folks. But I think it's also important to say, and we talked about this in prep, that black capitalism has its critique then and has its critiques now. Right. And, and, and this critique is that it's still, you're, you're, it's still a level of exploitation, right? right? Like you're not undermining the 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 system of capitalism that is undergirding the kind of exploitation that black 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 capitalism is trying to uh, alleviate or fix, and I think that that's kind of the challenge, right? That it can it can only do but so much. So, like going back to your point about uh, the questioning of the kinds of jobs that uh, Magic Johnson created with all those initiatives in the neighborhoods, right? Um, you know, he's like, yeah, you could work at Starbucks or you could work at the movie theater. And I'm like, those are teenage right. jobs, right? Those are jobs that teenagers can do, but that does not fix the long-term kind of impact of racist and racism affecting employment and housing discrimination and all those things that are embedded in the kind of capitalist structure, right? It's just fixing and it's kind of giving it a new facade of some of these other issues. And so I think that there are some kinds of those critiques I still think hold. And I think those are the critiques that get us in some ways um, uh, that are brought to the fore when Jay-Z has made his kind of contemporary move. Right. And and because that... That's what I was trying to say, and I and I didn't get a chance to write anything. So anything I was saying about this is like 240 characters on Twitter, but that's the critique, right? And especially with with the National Football League, um, that Jay Z really just wanted a seat at the table to to get to these billionaires, right? Because he had something else on his mind, um, and I think that's to me that's the problem. And there's nothing wrong with owning an NFL franchise. I think that's a that's a, a a great goal, but I think the NFL is part of the problem. And, and I think that's also where we get to try to really think about what Cap thinks about this. I think the toughest part about, and the Cap has suffered a lot, but, but for academics trying to figure this out or anyone trying to figure out what Cap thinks is that he's gone silent for like two years. So all we're left is like his reading list that, that was published like three years ago and his tweets, like the other one, um, 
he had a tweet uh, last week about Black Capitalism. Like, there's a critique of a book he was reading from 1969, uh, Black Capitalism, The Awakening of America, or something like that. Um, I'll get the title right. Black Awakening and Capitalism? Black o- Black awakening in the right, 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 and you knew that was coming. Like you just knew something like that was coming. But what also needs to come from him is maybe some other words too, because I would love to hear what he has to say. Right, with Eric Reed, you get it. Right, he's like, boom, you know, this is a neo-colonialist. Right, he calls that Malcolm Jenkins. He calls that a Jay Z, and then he follows up by giving what he thinks his definition is. Right, uh, with Cap, it's like mm-hmm. I want to hear because on the one hand, I remember when the Carolina Panthers were going to be for sale, right? And and because the owner was racist, and and how you didn't know he was racist, like how could you not? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like some things, like he's probably had a track <laughs> record for since the sixties. But anyway. Um, and and he was trying to – he has a tweet out there where he's, like, trying to get that team too, like him and Puffy. Let's get on this. And I'm thinking to myself, man, like, the Carolina Panthers are due millions and millions of dollars from the city of Charlotte just for simple maintenance, right? Um, and it's like, are you right. going to be a part of this as an owner, right? That would be interesting. Like, okay, Cap owns a team. Now are you going to take public money? Because you're, you're going to get public money. That's the – that's the you know the the coding. That's why you would want to buy an NFL team because so much of it is public investment. Um, the other thing we talked about in prep is that he's part of the system. Uh, whatever his politics are, right? He's part of the system, and I think that's he does some interesting things uh, to really try to break down the system. But he's still via his NFL contract that he had. And also his Nike contract, he's part of this system. So it'd be interesting to see what he says. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Like, and I, I, yeah, the point, and I think we talked about this before, and you just mentioned this lack of, like, I just kind of want, I want to know what Cap's 10 point platform is, right? It's clear he's influenced and in, 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 in reading through the material of the 60s. Um, whether it's the Panthers or it's, it's you know, Black Awakening and Capitalist America, like those texts were very much part of the reading list of a particular era. Uh, and many of those ideas hold true, but I also want to know how you translate uh, that, that analysis into the 21st century, both personally and more broadly, kind of uh, structurally. And I think that we don't get any of that kind of discussion, right? And I think what it also does because we don't get any commentary, I don't know how uh, Cap sees the evolution of the Black Panthers, right? Like, you know, I don't see how he sees the evolution of, of, of James and Grace Lee Boggs, right? I don't know how he sees the evolution of what we think of, of, of these kind of, what you know, 1960s radical thinkers, right? Um, that he's coming across, that he's reading, um, you know, so I think that's, a, you know, unlike us as scholars where we, you know, we read these things and we write about them and we talk about them at conferences and we work this, we work through our thinking kind of in public, um, we don't see some of that. And so we only get bits and pieces from Cap that leaves us all kind of of, of wanting in particular kinds of ways. But I want I want to, I want to think about a little bit about this Jay-Z thing and from a different angle. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Like when we, when we first prep, we was like, what are the precedents? <laughs> and that was a really good question. Cause even when we go back to James Brown, I mean, James Brown, <laughs> Jim Brown and Jackie Robinson, um, 
we don't see that same kind of precedent. Like we see them talking about black capitalism, but we don't see them having the kind of um, um, positionality vis-a-vis the professional league. Um, And so, you know, what kind of early, you know, what kind of other models can we look at to see, to help us understand Jay-Z? Yeah. uh, I think you brought up the the best one. We were talking about this in, in prep. Um, and that's that's Bob Johnson, right? Um, and you're the Bob Johnson expert. I'm not the Bob Johnson expert. I don't know if I'm a Bob designated Johnson, Bob I, Johnson expert. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the designated Bob. Well, I, you know, I said this to you before. I said I think Bob Johnson is the clearest example, right? Like for those who are not familiar, Bob Johnson is uh, was the former owner uh, of, of BET Black Entertainment Television. Um, that was started in the 1970s when cable television first started. And one of the things that Bob Johnson had made his thing, right, with these video shows. Um, so for those who are old enough to remember Donnie Simpson on Video Soul, right, um, or Big Tigger, my classmate at Maryland on Rap City, uh, Joe Claire, right, on um, Rap City, that one of the things that BT was known for was, was its videos. Um, and as the i think really when we get to the to the near the 2000 election there's all this push from uh you know black activists and and black press like hey BET you've got this platform why aren't we doing more news oriented program because we're not getting our position our our perspective seen on national tv and bob johnson makes a small caveat and he'll hire a few he'll run a short news show but one of his initial things is like, of course, I'm showing music videos because they pay the bills. They pay the bills. <laughs> you know, like I, they don't cost me any money. I can just run them on a loop. I can run them at night and then enough people will watch them that be, that justify and, and, and allow advertisers to pay for us. And so Bob Johnson, of course, does this, this model and becomes a billionaire, uh, him and his wife. And he then transforms that into buying uh, the charlotte hornets the basketball team and i think that's an interesting kind of way of of positioning and i i said this before i said you know jay-z seems to be like bob johnson with street cred right like he comes in he sold us this bill of you know he's got this 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 very you know traditional urban uh story a guy i'm a former drug dealer now i'm hanging out with obama now i'm married to beyonce and now i'm a billionaire and now this status of billionaire he's not really acting any different than bob johnson right no and i think that's 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 perfect one thing i was thinking about and this is in and you're the expert again on this kind of stuff um is during the civil rights movement whenever you had let's say a protest at a city let's say albany right um the the powers that be would try to negotiate with people who they thought they could negotiate with, right? Maybe not necessarily those people who are on the street. Maybe you're not necessarily negotiating with SNCC. You'll get somebody else you can make a deal with, right? And I think if we're talking like, you know, look, Jay-Z is no MLK, but one of the critiques you constantly get about MLK is that he'll come to the seat He'll sit at the seat of the table before other people are ready to sit at the seat of the table, right? And 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 sometimes it it leaves people out, right? Like Snick gets frustrated with him. Locals in Chicago get frustrated with him, right? Because he's there to 
get the best deal. Is that fair to say he's there sometimes to get the best deal possible? Like, I'm going to get integration. Yeah. I'm going to make this deal. But then there's other people who had been in the street. So that, that would be the cap in this scenario um, who want a seat at the table but don't get a seat at the table because the powers that be don't want them to have that seat at the table. I actually think that, you know, Jay-Z is probably not MLK uh-huh. in this sense, right? That Jay-Z is probably closer to A.G. Gaston. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Let's do that. Yes. Yeah. So, like in 1963, um, uh, King is arrested in Birmingham, and he decides to implement a strategy that he had actually learned in Tallahassee, which was, uh, that, you know, that he was not going to take bail; that he was going to stay in jail to draw attention to the conditions in jail, but also the broader issues of segregation uh, in uh, Birmingham and whatever community that he's in. And so, activists in Tallahassee had begun this strategy. Um, as part of their student movement in the 1960s. Uh, and the city of Birmingham was very fearful, right? So we know from, from, from any history book that King wrote a letter from the Birmingham city jail. And once this letter begins to come out, that uh, city officials reached out to A.G. Gaston and was like, look, you need to bail him out. And he does, right? And he does so in his mind because he believes he's trying to protect King from getting injured and that, and that he wants to protect his city. Uh, but it also serves as a person who was of tremendous uh, means um, that had this, you know, as a grandson of slaves who was had made his own living, um, decided that he wanted to buy his, use his wealth and his connections to bail King out and to tr- try to get a seat at the table to, to push negotiations from a position of, of wealth and power. And I think that's where we are, right? And at that point, he kind of undermined King, right? Because King at that point uh, in 63, especially after the letter from the Birmingham City Jail started to gain traction, he had this kind of leverage that was going to force not only Birmingham, but a large, a large other cities in the South to really kind of to come up with stronger kind of desegregation plans than they had wanted to do. Um, and so you see someone stepping in and using this position to get a seat at the table. So I think there's a, there, I mean, there are all these kind of examples of these, of, of African-Americans with, with particular kinds of wealth, um, uh, using a seat at the table as a right. parameter to undermine broader protest. Right, right. And that's the thing too. When they say don't go by downtown, they mean don't go buy stuff downtown, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, you mess things up. And I think that's what you get with the cat thing, right? Like, just kind of leave it alone. Let us continue these protests um, and, and continue to put pressure on the NFL in our own way. Um, and, and I think part of the problem, too, and this is my last point on this, and this is probably a good closing, is that the struggle with um, cap is this, and that is there's we're so used to, when we're looking at history, we're so used to, to to thinking about things in comparison, right? And and one of the things I think about is Ali. And when Ali was going through his difficulties uh, with the government after he refuses induction, within two months of him refusing induction, there's a meeting, right? And we call it the Ali Summit. That is the leaders 
in the sports, mm-hmm. the black leaders in the sports world who are also seen as political minds. So your Jim Browns, your your Bill Russells, your 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 John Wootens um, get together along with uh, who Walter Breach was there and then um, Carl Stokes. Kareem was there, a young Kareem too. Before, when he was Lou Alcindor, he's still in college, right? And and Carl Stokes, right? And I believe Carl yeah. Stokes is 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 the one getting these people together. And he's the same one who he'll get other, or if Cleveland Browns have an issue or, or uh, negotiation a year later or um, during the MLK post riots, right? It's Carl Stokes and these athletes trying to calm the city together. But the point is that they got together and they talked about things, right? They, they talked about it in private and then stuff went public. And I think that's, what's missing in this, right? Is that you have these problems between, let's say, uh, um, the Players Coalition and Eric Reed and Cap or Cap, Eric Reed and Jay-Z because of power, these powers, who these people who have these platforms aren't getting together and hashing that out, right? And, and coming up with a strategy. Like how powerful would it be if you had a LeBron, a Cap, a JC, you know, let's even add Serena to the mix, whoever names you can think of in this building, right? And and let's just throw out Barack Obama as his power broker, right? <laughs> or something like that. Not Al Sharpton, but Barack. And you have them in this setting trying to talk about these things together. That's what we're missing, right? You know, 52 years later, that's what we're missing, these top power brokers getting together and figuring out a way supporting each other and then figuring out a way to also have their own programs yeah i think that's absolutely correct and and they should also have uh the co-host of the black athlete on at this summit be right to provide, to provide some historical context for these discussions but no i agree i think there's a sense that that everybody's got their own platform with the social media uh, and their access to, to traditional media um, but what we don't have is this behind closed doors, these meetings, these summits. And it's in and, and the irony is, right, is that that when we, you know, these folks are studying the 60s and using 60s as an example, but one of the things that constantly happened was meetings behind closed doors to help hash out these kinds of things. Like I talk about this a little bit in um uh, my first book, The Challenge of Blackness, talking about how the Institute of the Black World, which is an organization I wrote about, helped organize behind the scenes the uh, black agenda, right, for the 1972 um, uh, Black Political Convention, right? And so all these things are kind of happening behind the scenes uh, where people are actually getting together who don't uh, always don't agree, you know, and I think that's the part that gets lost is that we think of this as like only the Panthers who agree, but there are all these evidence of these meetings of people who are both centrist, who are in the NAACP, who are leftists, who are nationalists, um, who are who are in these various organizations, who are calling people out in terms of their politics, in terms of politics on race and class and gender and sexuality. Like these are conversations that are being held behind closed doors. Uh, that were being held behind closed doors that we're not seeing now because we're, you know, and I think we're watching, uh, and I think you're right. I think the cap summit is something that, that actually should happen. And if it, you know, if it hasn't happened, we, and we could be, you know, it could have happened and we just missed it. Right. But it it looks as if it hasn't happened and it's something that should happen because I think there is, um, that there's some things that need to be hashed out about how do they move forward. Um, and it may not mean that they all agree, but they can really work towards some consensus about what, what the possibilities are. And I think that can't happen until they get in the room and talk. 
Right, right. And on that note, man, I think that's a, that's a powerful note to, to end this on. Uh, it's great to be back, man. And uh, I'll, I'll catch you on the next episode. Peace. Peace.